Romans chapter 8, we begin in verse 1. Verse 1 containing one of the most glorious statements in all the Bible with regard to our standing before God. When Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 13. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. We're going to focus here in a moment or two on verse 13. For if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. We've been dealing with the theme of bridging the gap. Bridging the gap between being a hearer of the word and a doer of the word. We've covered a few doctrines now. We've covered the doctrine of scripture, which applies to the whole topic generally. We've uh, made application from the doctrine of God. How do you be a doer and not just a hearer when it comes to learning your theology? There are those that hear much and do little. There are those that are very orthodox whose lives don't come close to matching their orthodoxy, and that just is not what God intended. And yet that phenomenon, I'm afraid, is more common than we realize. So how do you be a doer and not just a hearer when it comes to the doctrine of God? And you might recall that I drew a careful distinction between actually knowing God or merely knowing about God. Knowing God personally is what really bridges that gap. And if you know God, and you know him through Christ, so that you know Christ, 
and you're aware of him, that he is the only mediator between God and men. Well, that's going to lead you then from humble praise and thanksgiving to walk with God in the light of his word and to trust in him and to serve him and to worship him. That's how you become, as it were, a doer of God. We've also narrowed the scope of our study somewhat in contemplating the doctrine of holiness. Okay, we spent some time considering how essential that is. Holiness without which no man shall see God. We certainly classify holiness then as one of those essential virtues, and holiness is something to be done and not merely heard about also. Though we have to understand what it means and how it is a communicable attribute of God. And it's something we have a heart for and something that we strive for. To be holy as God is holy. And that challenge is put to us on numerous occasions throughout the Bible. In our last study, we took up the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And that's what I'm going to uh, continue with, at least uh, in some manner this morning. The doctrine of God's sovereignty. We read from Revelation chapter 4 earlier in the service very deliberately uh, because you see God on the throne in that chapter. And really, I suppose you could open your Bible about anywhere and find the proof of God's sovereignty. You find it from the very dawn of creation. This is a world and a universe that God has created and that he upholds by the word of his power and by the simple fact that he is the creator and governor, if you will, of the universe. Means that he is sovereign, that he rules over all, over everything and over every domain within this universe. I think I probably encouraged you to go and read, reread, and review. Uh, the end of the book of Job, chapter 40, where God himself steps into the scene at last following a prolonged trial on Job's part. And basically, God does not appear to Job in order to explain himself to Job, but rather in order to assert his sovereign rule to Job and to ask Job a series of questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Where were you when I sprinkled the heavens with the stars? Etc., etc. In very detailed fashion, uh, you can devote a study, and we did this many years ago, devote a study in which you explore the various domains of God's sovereign rule. As you follow Christ in the Gospels of the New Testament, you find Christ demonstrating his sovereign rule over everything. He rules over the demons, and hence he's able to cast them out. He rules over the elements, and hence he's able to still the stormy sea. He rules in the affairs of men, okay? His disciples were chosen by him in his sovereign rule. So God is sovereign over all. So we come then to consider, we looked at this last week, we, we looked at the theology lesson that God very impressively uh, impressed upon the mind and heart of King Nebuchadnezzar. He was a slow learner, but in the end he figured it out. 
when God reduced him to a beast and he had to eat grass in the field like a cow grazing, his hair growing into bird's feathers, his fingernails into bird's claws, and at the end of it all, he says, my reason returned unto me. And my, what an application you can draw from that statement. Your reason does return to you, so to speak, when you come to acknowledge that God rules and reigns over all. And that was the lesson that was impressed upon Nebuchadnezzar, which he did learn eventually, though he had to admittedly learn the hard way, so to speak. Uh, I hope that you don't find it as hard to learn that lesson. God is sovereign over all. How do you live that out then? How do you live God's sovereignty? How do you not just hear it, but do it? And really, the simplest and broadest answer I could give to that would be, if you know that God is sovereign, that he rules over all, then the thing that is incumbent upon you and upon me is that we submit to his sovereign rule. That we don't resist it, that we don't try to act independently of it, which is the tendency of man, but that we submit ourselves to his sovereign rule. Now it is in connection with um, Christ our King that I, I want to read to you this is what I had to go to my office to get. Um, the question and answer in our shorter catechisms that pertain to Christ being king, Christ ruling over all. Uh, we're in a section of the catechism that deals with the mediatorial offices of Christ. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. The authors of our confession and of the catechism show us how he functions, how he operates in each of those mediatorial offices. And so in question number 26, this is the question, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer, Christ executed the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Okay? He executes his office in subduing us to himself. That is a gradual process. That is really something of a description of sanctification. Christ, our King, subduing us, bringing us more and more into greater submission to himself, ruling and defending us, restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So in that answer, the focus is obviously on Christ. This is what he does as our king. Now, we come forward a little bit in the shorter catechism to question number 35, which asks, what is sanctification? Okay, really, in a sense, that is answered uh, in Christ's function as his office of a king, subduing us to himself, restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. But note also, we can add to the doctrine here the answer to what is sanctification. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God 
and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. We are enabled in his power more and more. It's an ongoing work. It's a procedure. It's a practice, not merely an act. I know I pointed this out before. Justification is an act of God wherein he declares us to be justified. Adoption is an act of God's free grace, wherein he takes us into his family. Sanctification is not merely an act, it is a work of God's free grace, whereby we're renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. That's really what it means to be subdued to him more and more. As our king, he subdues us more and more. He brings us into submission. That's tantamount to saying he enables us more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And from that, we can jump then into Romans chapter 8. Because Romans chapter 8, especially verse 13, is really dealing with this practice now of Christ our King subduing us, or of us being enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Verse 13 in particular addresses this matter of dying more and more unto sin, Again, the words of our text in Romans 8 and verse 13, If ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. If ye mortify the deeds of the body. That's what the divines had in mind when they spoke of dying more and more to sin. Mortifying the deeds of the body. Now, I'm pretty sure you know, I hope you know by now, that Paul's thesis in his epistle to the Romans is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. And there are a number of ways in which gospel power can be considered. It can and should be considered uh, in terms of Christ's death his atoning death. He is the propitiation for our sins, Paul writes in Romans 3, which means that he bore the wrath of God against our sins. God's righteous anger against sin was unleashed upon his son, and such was the power of Christ that he could not only endure that wrath, but could prevail over it until at last he made the announcement it is finished. And once he made that announcement, salvation was accomplished. Such power on the part of Christ to be able to outlast and outlive the wrath of God against sin. My, how that should move us to reverence and awe, as well as deep humility and heartfelt gratitude, which is really foundational to our sanctification. Another way that gospel power can be considered is in terms of the power of the Holy Spirit to apply salvation to our lives. You see, in spite of what Christ accomplished in his death, it would have meant nothing to any of us had not the Spirit of God 
powerfully broken down the gates of our resistance to God. The carnal mind, we read, is enmity against God. We read in verse 7. And apart from the Holy Spirit, regenerating our depraved hearts and enlightening our darkened minds and renewing our rebellious wills, we would have hugged our sins all the way to hell, Christ's death notwithstanding. Would have meant nothing to us. Just as sadly it means little or nothing to many in the world today that Christ has propitiated sin. So we may contemplate the power of Christ's death. He is our propitiation. We may contemplate the power of the Holy Spirit in our regeneration. He brought us forth from spiritual death to spiritual life. There is yet another way in which gospel power can be contemplated, and that is by thinking of it in terms of the power that is wrought in our lives to transform us. There is an ongoing source of power in the believer's life. And this is the power of sanctification. And this is what enables us to bridge the gap, if you will, between hearing of God's sovereignty and submitting to his sovereignty, our sanctification. The gospel, you see, rightly understood and appropriated by faith, conveys the power more than any other religion to take hopeless and helpless rebellious sinners and transform them into those that are morally upright, who live in integrity and honesty, which is merged with a spirit of humility, our sanctification. And this is Paul's argument in this portion of his epistle to the Romans. The critics of the gospel, especially the Jewish critics, thought Paul's logic would leave men free to sin with no dread of the consequences. What shall we say then? He asks in chapter 6 and verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That is the reasoning of many. That is the reasoning of those that would love to escape the punishment of sin without escaping the dominion of sin. They have a love for sin, but they don't so much love the idea of being condemned and spending time in hell for their sin. So they are glad to acknowledge uh, Christ's death for the forgiveness of their sins, but it has no impact on their lives. And this is what Paul was accused of being advancing. And in response to that objection, Paul goes on to explain in very practical terms how the gospel, in fact, succeeds where Jewish legalism could only fail. And it succeeds even though there may be sinners who think they can abuse it by making it an excuse or a free pass for their sins. It succeeds by implanting a whole new way of thinking and a whole new way of acting in our minds and in our wills, in the heart of the believer. And apart from that new way of thinking and acting, the sinner has not really been saved by the gospel. He has not really experienced its power. This new way of thinking and acting, as well as the consequences for the failure to adopt it, become abundantly plain and clear in the words of our text 
For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the, through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Listen to, way, to the way one commentator interprets this verse. He writes, If you live to indulge your carnal propensities, you will sink to eternal death. Either your sins must die, or you must. If they are suffered to live, you will die. If they are put to death, you will be saved. No man can be saved in his sins. This closes the argument of the apostle for the superiority of the gospel to the law in promoting the purity of man. By this train of reasoning, he has shown that the gospel has accomplished what the law could not do, the sanctification of the soul, the destruction of the corrupt passions of our nature, and the recovery of man to God. Now on the surface of it, the verse might seem to be a denial of free salvation. And indeed, this is a text, according to Arthur Pink, that Arminians twist to support their wrong notions. All the text is indicating, however, is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. There really is life-transforming power to be found in the gospel of Christ, and it becomes the true believer's responsibility to utilize that power. This is where it reaches you and me. This is where it comes to us in the form of a duty. This is where we bridge the gap between being hearers and doers. By us utilizing that power, we will mortify the deeds of the body. And this duty to mortify the deeds of the body as, is given to us, in other instances, as a command. Colossians 3 and verse 5 Paul writes, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Mortify these things. Put them to death. We find them manifesting themselves in us. Our task is to wage war against them and conquer them. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness. So this is what I want to focus on for a moment or two in the time that remains this duty of mortification. We're looking, I'm narrowing, I know, the, the aspect with which we become doers of God's sovereignty and not just hearers of it. Here is where we die more and more to sin, live more and more to righteousness. Here is where Christ is at work, uh, more and more subduing us to himself. We must mortify the flesh. Well, let's think first of all then on what that means. What does it mean to mortify the flesh? The word mortify means very simply to put to death, put to death. The Greek term behind our English word most often appears with reference to Christ being put to death. So we read in Matthew 27, verse 1, when the morning was come, 
all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They took counsel, in other words, to mortify Christ. It's fitting that this term applies most often with regard to his death, for the same kind of death, spiritually speaking, is what the believer is to apply to his flesh. How was Christ put to death? He was crucified. He was mortified, if you will, by means of crucifixion. I never will forget how one commentator pointed out that crucifixion is a slow death. And so do we find the process of mortification to be a slow process? Oh, it would be nice, I suppose, if we could in one and final single instance put sin to death altogether. But God hasn't ordained that for us yet. Oh, the time will come when we'll cross the finish line, and that will be a completed process. But in the meantime, it's a slow process. It is not something that we'll ever see absolutely accomplished so long as we remain in this present evil world. But it is something that the believer will ever endeavor to do. The tense of the verb in Greek indicates continuous action. This is an action or a duty, in other words, that the Christian must be doing continuously during the days of his pilgrimage in this world, mortifying the flesh, putting the flesh to death. And not only is crucifixion a slow death, but crucifixion is a painful death. And mortifying the deeds of the body is likewise painful. The flesh, you see, hates to give up sin. The flesh constantly and strongly protests the process of being denied and constantly asserts its lusts. The flesh is ever searching for ways to justify and excuse sin or to play down the heinous nature of sin. Part of the process of mortification is not to give in to such carnal reasoning. Indeed, mortifying the flesh involves putting to death even that kind of reasoning that takes sin lightly or that excuses it too readily. It's important to understand, and you may have gathered by this point, that when Paul deals in the sections of Romans with the flesh or the deeds of the body, he's speaking about our carnal nature. Okay? The flesh, in the first part of the verse, is the same as the deeds of the body in the latter part of the verse. We're dealing now with that part of man's nature that originally rebelled against God, and has a propensity to continually rebel against God. It is the carnal nature of man, that part of him, like the Jews, says with regard to Christ, we will not have this man to rule over us. That's what our flesh says. That's, what our, that's how our flesh is constantly asserting itself. We won't have Christ to rule over us. We don't care that he is king, that he is sovereign. We declare ourselves to be uh, independent and sovereign in and of ourselves. That's the thinking of sinful men. That's the thinking of our carnal natures. 
Eight times we find mention made of the flesh in the first 13 verses of Romans 8. And from those mentions of the flesh, we come to learn that it is weak through the law and that it is sinful. We learn that it pertains to our minds as well as our conduct and that those that are in the flesh cannot please God. The carnal mind is enmity against God and is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be, verse 7. If we add Romans 7 to the analysis, then we can note that in the flesh there dwells no good thing and that the flesh serves the law of sin. It's no wonder then that the believer acquires the duty to mortify the flesh. The flesh, you could say, represents all that is wrong with man. The flesh is the very thing from which sinners need to be saved. And yet Paul is not addressing sinners in this epistle. He's addressing Christians. John Gill raises an interesting question about those who live in the flesh. Listen to what he says. It may be asked whether one that has received the grace of God in truth can live after the flesh. Flesh or corrupt nature, though still in such a person, has not the dominion over him. To live in sin or in a continued course of sinning is contrary to the grace of God. But flesh may prevail and greatly influence the life and conversation for a while. How long this may be the case of a true believer under backslidings through the power of corruptions and temptations cannot be known. But certain it is that it shall not be always thus with him. Oh, the season of backsliding uh, is true, it's real. Sometimes it's long. I'm reminded of the example of David when he uh, strayed from the Lord, lived in the land of the Philistines for a year and a half, and uh, in a terrible spiritual condition. But it won't always be that way. Neither can the Christian find contentment in that way for very long. The mark of a true believer, you see, is that he will loathe his carnal nature. I hate the besetting sins. I hate the sins I have to fight against. He will hate the fact that his flesh gets the best of him. And he will not and indeed cannot be happy under the constant sway of his carnal nature. David could commit awful sin in the flesh, but he couldn't be happy, as I say, in that condition. When I kept silence, he writes in Psalm 32 and verse 3, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Do you hear what he's saying in that text? Such was the effect of the voice of his conscience roaring at him that he felt himself aging faster than he actually was. It, it becomes tiring, it becomes wearisome when the conscience is roaring at one. The point I want to emphasize this morning is that salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ means salvation not just from a future form of punishment. Thank God it does include that, but salvation means being saved from sin's dominion 
right now. Salvation applies to us in this life. Salvation doesn't bring us to the point of sinless perfection, but it does set us on the path to strive for it. And the mark of a man who is saved is that he finds himself in the condition Paul describes in Romans 7, wanting to do the things that he should, but not doing them, but doing instead the things that he would not do. His cry is the same as Paul's in Romans 7, verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The body of this death is a sinful nature that yet clings to him like the weight of a rotting corpse. In fact, some commentators suggest that the image in Romans 7 is taken from Roman law in which a convicted murderer would be sentenced to having the corpse of his victim tied to him until the decaying corpse would eventually spread to the murderer's body and eventually take his life. I don't know if that is the case or if that's what Paul meant, but it certainly is a vivid illustration, isn't it? The body of this death. The believer is taught to view his sin nature that way. It's not something he wants to yield to. It's not something he wants to bargain with. It's something, rather, that he wants to mortify and get the victory over. And that's the mark of a man who bridges the gap between hearing and doing God's sovereignty. The next question we must consider, therefore, is the question, how? How do we mortify the flesh? Our text makes two things very plain. The first thing is that mortifying the flesh is something we cannot do in our own strength. Note the words, if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, our text reads, the Spirit must be very much involved in the process. The second thing made clear is that this practice of mortifying the flesh is something that we do. We are actively involved in it. We are not merely passive in our sanctification. The command is given to us, and in our text, the condition of life depends on rising to this duty. Note that Paul writes, if ye, you, you dear Christian, if you through the Spirit do mortify. So you see a means is given through the Spirit, but you see a duty is given, and that applies to you and to me if ye through the Spirit do mortify. And by noting these two things, we should be enabled to uh, avoid a couple of grave errors. The first error would be the mistake of thinking that it's simply a matter of our own willpower when it comes to mortifying the flesh. The flesh holds too much sway over us to make the conquering of the flesh simply a matter of willpower. Reminded of Peter, Oh, he thought he had the willpower not to deny Christ. Then when push came to shove, he denied him three times right before a little maid. Okay? There are some, not many, but some even among the ranks of the unsaved that have very strong willpower. 
and are able to demonstrate remarkable self-discipline. Some of them put Christians to shame. They may abstain from drugs and drink. They may watch their diets and devote themselves to a certain amount of exercise, and as a result, they keep themselves physically fit. Maintaining physical fitness is a far cry from mortifying the flesh. Mortifying the flesh, you see, not only involves keeping fleshly appetites in check, it also involves the slaying of pride and self-righteousness. It involves the slaying of carnal motives. A man may exhibit what appears to be remarkable self-discipline, and yet his motive for doing so might be completely carnal. He's living for self. He's devoted to himself. And all that he does or abstains from doing goes no further than his own self-interest. Well, mortifying the flesh is a supernatural process and must be done through supernatural means. It's true that the will of the believer is involved in the process, though. But it would be a mistake to think that Mortification is simply a matter of willpower. On the other hand, it would be also a mistake to think that the Holy Spirit performs this task apart from us. The believer is involved in the process, and it's his duty to utilize the power of the Holy Spirit to mortify the flesh. It is God's Spirit, according to Paul in Philippians, that worketh in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And because of the Spirit's work, it becomes our task to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. This is not salvation by means of works, but it is salvation that is put to work, so to speak. How then does the Spirit work in us? And how do we utilize the Spirit's power to mortify the flesh? Well, the Spirit works in us in such a way that we are enabled to discover sin. And when we discover it, we hate it. We see sin as the very thing that damns our souls to hell. We see sin as an affront to God. And through the gospel, we come to see sin as the very thing that nailed our Savior to a cross. It certainly is a mark of our degenerate age when even Christians treat sin so lightly. We expect sinners to treat sin lightly. They are, after all, still in the flesh. They hate the fact that their conscience bothers them at all about sin. They can't get enough of it. And one of the pains of hell that will move them to gnash their teeth against God will be the fact that they're cut off from pursuing their fleshly lusts, which will still be demanding to be fed, even while they're burning in hell. We understand their attitude towards sin, but how does it come about that Christians also can treat sin so lightly as if sin is a thing of little consequence. The only way a Christian can adopt such a light view of sin is by keeping himself far away from the cross of Christ. 
The Christian who draws near the cross, you see, learns from the cross what God thinks about sin. I remember Dr. Cairns used to make that a point of emphasis. He was being highly critical of preachers who thought that by giving graphic descriptions of all the grotesque elements of sin would increase a hatred for sin. Dr. Cairns said that doesn't work. And if you want to develop a hatred for sin, learn God's attitude toward it. And the best place to find that out is at the cross of Christ. See the whipping of Christ's back and know that this is what sin deserves. See the crown of thorns pressed into his brow. It's sin that crowns the Savior with mockery and derision. See the nails being driven into his hands and feet. Your fiery lusts forge the nails, and your rebellion brings the hammer down upon those nails. And then see Christ suspended between heaven and earth, nailed to a cross in agony and shame. You begin to get an idea of what sin deserves. But you only begin to get the idea. When it comes to Christ suffering for sin, he must plumb the depths that we cannot see. And so a veil of darkness has to be drawn across the scene from the sixth to the ninth hour. And during that time of darkness, we cannot begin to fathom the sufferings that our sins placed upon Christ. All we're able to do is hear from behind that veil our Savior's cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the answer to that question is because our sins have been laid upon him. Our sins have brought forth his incomprehensible sufferings. Our sins have slain the prince of life. If you can behold him bearing shame and scoffing rude and not be moved to deep humility and a holy hatred for your sins, then the cause must be traced to the absence of the Holy Spirit in your life and you yet remain in your sins. It's the Spirit, you see, that brings Christ to the believer's remembrance. That is his primary ministry, after all, to minister Christ to Christ's people. It must be the Spirit who leads you to Calvary and impresses upon you something of the reality of Christ as your sin-bearing substitute. And when the Spirit of Christ leads us to the cross of Christ, then the follower of Christ is humbled. He's humbled and he's grateful, for he sees a manifestation of love that can never be fully comprehended. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Christ said in John 15, 13, And how is such love supposed to affect a believer? Well, it affects him by causing him to love Christ in return. It affects him by leading him to seek Christ for forgiveness of sins. But he doesn't merely want forgiveness. He wants victory. He wants victory over sin. He hates the sin that would have damned his soul, the sin that nailed the Savior to a tree, and in the power of love and the power of hate. He's now resolved to conquer sin and do all that is necessary to give no occasion to the flesh to tempt him with this sin. And in this fashion, 
sin is mortified. The Spirit discovers our sin, convicts us of our sin, leads us to Christ to gain forgiveness of our sin, shows us what Christ did to provide that forgiveness, and stirs our hearts by Christ's provision to overcome that sin. What must we do then to gain the benefit of the Spirit's work? Well, we must walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Verse 1, and again in verse 4 of Romans 8, we must mind the things of the Spirit. Verse 5, we must recognize and be willing to pay our debt. Verse 12, therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. What are we debtors to then? We thought of this a short time ago. We're debtors to the Spirit, and we're debtors to Christ himself. Paul states the matter very succinctly in Galatians 5 and verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The only thing that will prevent us from knowing the Spirit's help in mortifying the flesh will be spiritual negligence on our part. And I dare say that where you find instances of Christians so-called falling into deep and awful sin, the cause can be traced first to spiritual negligence. And so we see what it means to mortify the flesh. I hope you can see a little more clearly now as to how it's done. It remains for us to consider, finally, why it's important why it's important to mortify the flesh. Simply put, you can say it's a matter of life and death. And doesn't our text make that plain? For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. As one commentator put it, if ye do not kill sin, it will kill you. Life and death can be viewed from two different perspectives in this text, and I think Paul intends for that to be the case. There is the perspective of eternal life and eternal death, and the plain truth of the matter is that if you live after the flesh, you will die eternally. You will, in the end, be condemned for your sins. You will, in the end, be discovered as having no real interest in Christ but only an interest in escaping punishment. I said earlier in the, messages that, in the message that Arminians have used this text in such a way as to lend credence to their notion that a man may lose his salvation. The verse is not teaching us that. Paul is addressing the same ones that he addresses in verse 1, and in verse 1 we're told that there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Are we holding out the possibility now, based in verse 13, that there may be condemnation to them, depending on whether or not they do or do not mortify the deeds of the body? I don't believe that's what Paul intends. But what he does intend is that there cannot 
and should not be assurance of salvation to those who habitually follow after the, the flesh. They could prove at the end of the day to be among those that hear the Lord say to them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity, Matthew 7, 23. Here is a text then that enables us to make our calling and election sure. The sinner that's been saved will certainly possess the desire to mortify the flesh. He may not be happy with the extent of his success, but on the other hand, he can draw assurance from the fact that he at least has the desire. He hates the sin that too easily besets him, and he doesn't deny or excuse his sin or blame others for it. He constantly pleads the blood of Christ over it and presses the battle against his sin. That's evidence of eternal life. That's evidence of the indwelling spirit. That's experiencing the power of the gospel in the way that God meant it to be known. And I might add, that bridges the gap between hearing and doing. Anything short of that experience amounts to having an outward show of godliness, but not really knowing anything of the power. So life and death can be viewed from that eternal perspective, the perspective of everlasting life and everlasting damnation. I believe the text can also be viewed in the practical realm of spiritual life and spiritual death. To the extent that a believer is mortifying the flesh, to that same extent he's sowing to the Spirit and walking by the Spirit and minding the things of the Spirit. He's keeping close to Christ and is knowing the vitality of everlasting life. The professing Christian who devotes too much time to the world and the flesh and has become negligent in spiritual things. He spends little of any time in prayer. He spends little, if any, time in the Word. This man loses his spiritual vitality and becomes desensitized to the things of God. His religion becomes to all practical intents and purposes a dead religion, and he himself becomes dead to the things of God. Oh, it is a solemn and serious thing then to contemplate the awful truth that if your religion seems dead, it may be because you are dead. The thing a professing Christian in such a condition needs to weigh is whether or not he's ever known the spiritual vitality that comes in walking with the Lord. Maybe he's never done any more than give a certain assent to the truths of the gospel without really having his heart regenerated. If you find yourself in such a state that you can say, I did know the sweetness of fellowship with Christ, I have known the blessing of walking with Christ in the light of his word, but that was some time ago. I haven't known that peace and joy and assurance of believing for some time now. If that's your case, then you need to begin anew to seek Christ with all your heart and to plead with him for the power of the Holy Ghost to be given you that you may mortify the flesh and begin again to know the blessing of life. 
This is how we bridge the gap then between hearing and doing, especially as it regards the sovereignty of Christ. The matter of mortifying the flesh is of the utmost importance. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of eternal life or eternal death. And it's a matter of knowing the blessing of life or being subject to dead religion. Oh, I trust this morning that the Lord will so stir your hearts that you'll find the grace that compels you to say that by the grace of God, I will overcome the flesh by mortifying the deeds of the body that I may gain assurance of salvation and walk in the joy and peace of believing in Christ. Let's close then in prayer. And let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence and bring this meeting to a close, we thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that there was power toward God and that Christ propitiated our sins and satisfied God's justice. We thank thee, Lord, for the powerful way in which we gained an interest in Christ's death. We attribute this to thy power and thy grace. For Lord, if left to ourselves, it would have meant nothing to us. And we thank thee, Lord, that there is also the ongoing power of the gospel in the power of the Holy Ghost by which we mortify the flesh. O oh Lord, give us the victory, we pray. May we devote ourselves all the more to sowing to the Spirit, minding the things of the Spirit, abiding in Christ, His Word, abiding in us, maintaining close fellowship with Him so that we gain that vitality and that gumption that are needed in order for us to devote ourselves to this part of our spiritual warfare of mortifying the flesh. So, Lord, hear our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.